Family, we're in chapter 25 in our study of the patriarchs, and we cracked into chapter 25 last week because the first 12, excuse me, 11 verses detail the uh, death of Abraham, and that I like, I like the phrase that's in verse 8, an old man full of years gathered to his people. He died in a good old age. He was 175 years old. As you might remember, he had... Uh, he and Sarah had had their covenant son, Isaac. He was 100 years old when Isaac was born. So that's a remarkable life. He is the paradigm of faith in the Bible. He is held up as a man who illustrated what a walk with God looks like. Even in times that he stumbled, he still was a man of extraordinary faith. Now, verses 12 through 18, I'm not going to read all of that, but I simply want to single out that God has not forgotten Ishmael. You might remember he is the son of Abraham to Hagar, who was the slave, the servant of Sarah. But nonetheless, God does not forget him. In chapter 17, verse 20, he had made a promise to Ishmael, and actually he mentioned that to Abraham as well, that from Ishmael would come a people, a great people, uh, and he has 12 sons, and they are listed here. I'm not going to read all of those, those various names, Nabiot, Hadar, Abdiel, etc. There are 12 of those, and then they disperse. Notice verse 7, 16. These are the sons of Ishmael. These are their names, their villages, their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. Uh, correctly, the ESV is translating that princes, but what that really means is a, like a tribal leader. I mean, when you think of prince, you're thinking like a royal office. Don't think that way. In other words, these are the heads of the tribes. And, there are, and it's really interesting, 12 tribes to Jacob, 12 tribes to Ishmael. And then it tells us that, that he dies at 136, seven years, breathed his last and died. They settled, they would be his sons, settled from Havilah to Shur which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. Shur is what would pretty much be the desert between Egypt and Israel. But nonetheless, and all the way over to Assyria, that's to the uh, Tigris-Euphrates River Valley. This is where all the clans and tribes of Ishmael settle. And many of these people are the Arab peoples and the various Bedouin tribes. Have you heard the word Bedouin? Is that a, that's not a new name to you. Okay. The various Bedouin tribe. They're nomads. I've been to the Middle East a number, numerous times in my life. And even when you're in Israel, but definitely as you go into Jordan, Bedouin tribes are everywhere. They're nomadic people. Many of them are herding camels and other animals. Uh, they are not farmers. They're herders. And they live in tents. They still live in tents. Can I tell you a quick story? Down there uh, near Beersheba, which is... Southern Israel, right on the edge of the Negev Desert. There are large concentrations of Bedouin tribes. They're still living in their tents and like lean-tos. The government of Israel promised them, we will build housing for you. We will help you to sell. They said, no, we don't want it. We want to continue living the way our generations have lived. I mean, what, what is being stated here is the origin of all those Bedouin tribes that just populate the Middle East, the entire Middle Eastern area. And that's uh, it's exactly what God had said the descendants of Ishmael would be. 
They would be wanderers. They would be people of the land and so on. And it's remarkable consistently because this is two, you know, roughly 2000 BC. That's 4,000 years ago. Those basic traditions of, of these tribes continues even today. And it's a fascinating thing because I met one of the Bedouin uh, leaders uh, in one of the trips. But anyway, they are very, very proud people, very, very proud of what they have been able to do. And they're also proud that they don't think anything to the government, whether Jordan, Israel, or anywhere else. They're very self-sufficient, independent, nomadic people. And <laughs> about another quick story. One of them had these herds of animals, of, of camels. I've never seen so many camels in my life. And they, they, they are very, very independent and very proud people. And it's just fascinating to, to see that. What do they do with the camels? What do they do with them? Well, camels are slaughtered and eaten, but they also, they, re, they remain work animals. They're a very, very good work animal to haul things in among among the Bedouins, that's how they move a lot of their food and other things around from one village to another village to another, I should say. Well, at least sort of a village. But yeah, they still have camels. You can still, uh, well, anyway, it's, it's really something to see. When people, it's really something when somebody sees a camel and they're on the bus, the whole bus leans this way. Everybody <laughs> wants to see the camel. So, And, you know, I'm always afraid the bus is going to tilt over or something like that. But, uh, once you see them, then you start seeing more of them, but it's really fascinating. We're in chapter 25 of the treatment of Genesis. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought he... No, I did. I had it. Oh, okay, good. Sorry. I good. wasn't sure. All right. All right. I told a few stories there, and it took some time. Now, verse 19. Now, what starts in verse 19 is now the focus on the third patriarch, which is Jacob. Now, interspersed with that, with this, is still going to be Isaac. But Isaac is near the end of his life. And it is interesting, the Bible has an enormous amount to say about Abraham. We've been on Abraham for chapters. Isaac, almost nothing. A little bit about Rebekah, a little bit about their marriage and so on. And that's it. Now you're going to see Isaac in the context of Jacob and Esau, his, his two sons. Here, we'll get that in a minute. But other than Isaac will die. So there isn't a lot of material on Isaac in terms of, of the patriarchs. There's a lot more on Jacob. The only amount of in the book of Genesis that exceeds the material on Jacob is Joseph. Joseph will be the focal point from chapter 39 through the end of the book. But Jacob here is going to now be, be the important focus here. Now, as we get started with this, just a couple of things that I want to say by way of introduction. One of the reasons why the text gives so much focus to Jacob is because he has 12 sons. These will be the 12 tribes of Israel. These will be the 12 tribes that 400 and some years later will populate Canaan, which is the promised land. So the Bible is, is very interested in detailing these 12 sons. But also the Bible, this is the second point, the Bible is also interested in zeroing in on the character of Jacob. Jacob is not a nice man. He's a trickster. He's a conniver. He's a deceiver. He is the epitome of Frank Sinatra's famous song, I Did It My Way. Do you ever hear, do, do any of you know who Frank Sinatra is? <laughs> Often when I speak to groups, people, I say that, and they say, who's that? You know, 
There are people under 20. But I think the- I think you're safe here, Jim. Okay. <laughs> Very I safe. Realize, yes, I thought you were only 21. So you do know Frank and Sinatra. Okay. But if you know that song, that that is just crystallizing the attitude of Jacob. He knows that God has made him the promise to be the covenant son. But he is going to get everything his way. And this is the third point by introduction. God must break him of that. He will not allow Jacob to continue in this conniving, deceiving way. And that's what Genesis 32 is going to be all about. And at that point, God will change his name from Yahweh, which is how you pronounce his name in Hebrew, to Israel. That change of name is going to be profoundly important for the Bible, because from here on out, his descendants will be called the children of Israel, Jacob's new covenant name. And incidentally, Israel means he who struggles with God. And as Jacob struggled with God, all of his descendants, that's kind of in synopsis, that's the history of Israel. They just struggle with God. They're his covenant people, but they're just like Jacob. And so the story of Jacob, which begins in verse 19, is an extremely important story because it introduces us to the covenant name Israel, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes, and it gives us an insight into the character of the Israeli people. They are his covenant people, but they will struggle for all, and still even today, struggle with obedience to the God who's called them. So let's begin with verse 19. These are the generations, the Toledot is the Hebrew word, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 40 years old when he took Rebekah. This is sort of a summary. The daughter of Bethuel, Aramean of Padamaran, sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. We know all that, that's just a summary. Now verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord, note Lord there is in capitals, that's Yahweh, prayed to Yahweh for his wife. Why? Because she was barren. That's really, (coughs) that's so interesting, isn't it, that so many of these covenant leaders, their wives are barren. That was true of Sarah. And so God has to do something miraculous. And why is that often the case? And I don't know the answer to that. I would only speculate that God intervenes in this kind of situation, like with Sarah, as well as with with Rebecca and Isaac, to demonstrate his sovereignty, but also to demonstrate he is in control of this covenant relationship. And so you have the Lord granted his prayer. I don't. I want children, you are promising to me, Isaac, this is Isaac, that I'm the covenant son, which means a covenant son is going to come from me. But Rebecca's barren. Lord, I just want to remind you of that. I'm the covenant son. You're going to extend the covenant through me and my son, but my wife's barren. Lord, you remember that. She's barren. And so, Lord, I'm embellishing that a little bit, but you know what? He prayed, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, verse 22, the children struggled together within her. That 
Hebrew verb that ESV is the translation I read from that translates it struggle. That is a very intense term. In other parts of the New Old Testament, it's translated crushing. It's translated oppressing. So struggle together. I mean, Rebecca is experiencing these children in her belly going like crazy. My daughter, Joanna, is pregnant. She's five and a half months pregnant. And we saw them last week and we touched her belly because you know, she's showing it right now. We touched her belly and we could feel. Uh, they give they they haven't named yet. It's a boy, and they've nicknamed the boy Tater Tot. So we're touching Tater Tot. I can feel him kick. So uh, they had their ultrasound done uh, last week, and the, the gal who's in it, she said, I have never seen a baby so active. Now you don't know Joanna, but that doesn't surprise me. Not one bit. <laughs> And her husband, her husband Andrew, is just like incredibly active, very energetic. He's in a lot of athletics. So here's his, his kid. So I don't, I don't know. So that verb might fit my grandchild growing in my daughter's belly. But struggle together within her. And she said, "If it is thus, why is this happening to me?" And so she went to inquire the Lord. So, you know, we must assume that this struggling that we're going to camp on for just a minute was extraordinary. It's, it's, it's beyond the normal. So she wants to know what's going on in my belly. And so the Lord answers her. Now, what I want you to notice here is as God answers her, you see his sovereignty. You see his electing choice. Those words don't bother you, do you? Do they? <laughs> I mean, here's, here's God in control. Here's God in control of his covenant people. Isaac and Rebecca are about to give, you know, they, they're going to have a child, but it's going to be twins. And so this, this raises an issue. Which one's the covenant son? Is that up to Isaac? Is that up to Rebecca? It's up to the Lord. And so that's why it's just, it's, it's interesting because among other things, what we see here, and Paul makes much of this in Romans chapter 9. He builds his whole argument of chapter 9 of the book of Romans around God's sovereign choice. And so God says to Rebecca, two nations are in your womb. And the two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, when you have twins, the older serving the younger is a matter of minutes, not years. So what that means is the first one out of the womb is going to serve the younger because the first one out of the womb should be the covenant son should be the firstborn but god says that's not the way it's going to be the younger shall be the covenant son why do you think that is because this could have been real simple if god would have just had uh, jacob go first ed i can't answer that question 
I honestly, I, I, I can't answer that question. And I think God, yeah, and that's a great question, but I think God in one sense leaves us hanging on how to answer that. Because again, the Apostle Paul makes much of this in Romans 9. Don't try to figure out what God's doing. Don't try to figure out why he does what he does. Does the potter say to the, does the clay say to the potter, why'd you make me this way? I mean, that's, that the emphasis of this is God has sovereignly chosen which one's going to be the covenant son. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to get the reasons for it. It's the stress and emphasis is on God's divine choice. And we accept that. God's sovereign choice is something we accept. Doesn't Nobody said I'm into that, so I'm not sure you're <laughs> Doesn't that know when we see this maybe and ultimately, and in one sense, only eternity will help us to understand that. But ultimately, it, he always has our best interest at heart, whatever it is. Because here we're talking about, here meaning in this chapter, we're talking about the context is, who is going to be the sovereign uh, choice for the son, the covenant son. But, and this is part of what Paul's arguing in Romans 9, 10, 11 notes, that sovereignty and divine electing choice of God is true today in everything. And that is real, that's hard for people. That is very, very hard. It's hard for me in the very practical things that happen. But Chuck Swindoll, uh, whom I, I really like him, but Chuck Swindoll has written, if you really believe in the sovereignty of God, you should stop using words like chance, fate, coincidence, luck, luck. because if you really believe in God's sovereignty, none of those four terms apply. And a simpler way to say it is things don't just happen. And we struggle with the right words to use, you know, a horrible disaster occurs, and you say, did God cause that? Well, the Bible doesn't seem to say no, but God permitted it. In God's sovereignty, he permits that. And, of course, that will be later in the book here with Joseph. God will permit all those terrible things to happen to Joseph for a much greater purpose and end. That's how Jacob's clan is going to get down to Egypt. That's a very important thing to explain. But God is allowing and permitting and sovereignly superintending all of this to accomplish his purpose. So, Ed, the answer to your question is, I don't think, I can't give an answer to that. But I don't think God necessarily wants us to. It's God's chosen the younger over the older. Now, in twins, it's just a matter of minutes, but the young is going to rule. The young's going to be the covenant son. And you'll find out in a minute, that's Jacob. Okay. What, what you were saying too, we see these tsunamis uh, precipitated by earthquakes, and then hundreds of people are dead in just you know, a matter of minutes. God, why, why did you do that? We have to believe that He has has purposes in mind. Don't you think? I mean, well, yeah, 
Yeah, it, there are two <clears throat> there are two theological issues that relate to your question. The first one is, it is always important to remember Genesis three. We live in a fallen, broken world where there are going to be accidents, there are going to be storms, there are going to be earthquakes, there's going to, all of those things, many of which will take human life. So that I mean, that is, this fallen, broken world means those things are going to happen, and I mean. Uh, yeah, in, in a sense, we shouldn't be surprised by them. And yet, that's ridiculous. We are surprised by them. But it's just like, you know, Russ lives in California. I don't know why he does. But he lives in California. And because he lives in California, he always thinks about every morning when he wakes up, am I near an earthquake fault? Isn't that right, Russ? Isn't that what you think about? No, I, actually, I'm thinking about how cold it is here. Oh, is that right? <laughs> Well, we're in the 50s here. Are you cold out there? Oh, that's that. No, no, that's that's beautiful. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, no, we're not having winter in Omaha this year. I, you, know, you probably already read about that. Awesome. We're that's not, great. Yeah, we're not having winter. We're so sorry, Jim. It was 60 degrees <laughs> here yesterday, which, you know, it just seems to be to be a tense example of the persecution and fallenness of our world. But outside of that, I don't know where I'm going with it. What was the question I was answering? But it's the, this whole issue then must relate to it's a cursed world, therefore those things will happen, but God is sovereignly controlling all of those, I better say, allowing all those things for greater purpose. Is there a difference between his interference where his election of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is different than a world he's created that has earthquakes? and stuff that we live subject to gravity, that's something a little separate. Well, yes, but still, we, you certainly would agree, though, even with those things, the natural forces that God created in this world, so God still sovereignly right. is overseeing and superintending that. But, you, I mean, you're right. He set up a series of natural laws in which his world works. Right. And though there will be earthquakes because of the plate moving, all that stuff, there are going to be those things. You jump off the big building. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, that's just the way he made things. Well, I don't like it. I don't know. All right. See as you go down because you only have a few more seconds to live. Christ, thing. But, all right. Well, we got on a bunny trail there, but a valuable one. <clears throat> but please notice, though, the other thing about, I'm back now to the, the response of God to uh, Rebecca's prayer. Notice that two nations are in your womb. And we're going to find out what that means the nation of Israel, and the nation of Edom. Because Esau, the older brother, the firstborn, will be the father of the Edomites, Edom. And Edom, the Edomites will settle south of the Dead Sea. Well, I'll talk about that later. And of course, Israel is Jacob. So it's, it's really interesting. Here you see again, Rebecca has no idea what in the world is going on. God has just revealed to her profound truth. These will be the father of two nations. But I'm upending everything, Rebecca. The younger will rule over the older. The younger will be the covenant son. When her days, I'm in verse 24 now, when her days to give birth were completed, Behold, there were twins in her womb. The first one came out red. All of his body like a hairy cloak, 
So they called his name Esau. Esau is Hebrew for red. And we don't exactly know what the text is like a hairy, it's like, that's a simile. It is not a hairy cloak, it's like a hairy cloak. So whether this is just the way he looked, because you know when a baby comes out of the room, it needs to be cleaned up. <laughs> it just had such an intense shade of red, we don't know, but it's Esau. After his brother came out, after his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, his name was called Yahoo, Jacob. Jacob literally means heel catcher. That's what it means. Now, keep, keep that literal meaning in your back of your mind, because that's going to come up again. That meaning of Jacob, his, what his name means, is going to define his character flaw that character flaw that's going to get him in trouble. <clears throat> Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, if you do the math, they got married when he was 40. He's 60, so it's 20 years. So the kids came along. Again, I remember Sarah and Abram waited 25 years once God promised until Isaac was born. So, I mean, I'm not saying anything other than it's 20 years. Don't, don't forget that. Now, verse 27 begins to fill in the meaning of these two boys' names, and the needs of these two boys' names starts to fill out their character. When the boys grew up, now, when they grow up doesn't mean they're 50 years old, but teens, probably in their teens. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Well, Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Now, the language here is an aggressive hunter, a reflective nomad. They're not settled down in farming. They're, they're you know, like Abraham, Isaac is a nomad. He does not have, they're not living in cities. He's got herds and herds and herds of animals. And so what the, the point here is that you have this very distinctive difference of character. Esau is an aggressive hunter. Jacob is a reflective nomad. Next verse is extremely important. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah Love Jacob. I want to ask you a question. Is that a positive verse? Absolutely not. That is not a positive verse. That is a verse loaded with potential trouble. So what you're telling me, man, is that parents should not favor one child? Parents shouldn't show preference to one child? Certainly. Well, but other things, yeah. <laughs> I know. We still do. As much as you try. Tony Evans, well, on the radio, the way up here, was talking about this. Oh, is that right? 
Did he comment on that verse? Okay. I, I, I commented on that specifically. Yeah. He was pointing out yeah. problems. This, this, is, this is the genesis of terrific dysfunction in a family. If the dad shows preference for one child, mom shows preference for another, you're setting yourself up for really intense difficulty. From That's exactly what happens. Because Rebecca will be just as conniving, just as deceitful as her son. And so Rebecca is going to join and sing a, a duet with her son, singing Frank Sinatra's song. It's not, I did it now, we did it our way. And I mean, because she, she knows what God told her, but we just read about it, that Jacob is going to be the covenant son. And so she should, what, sh what should she have done? Okay, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do this, because Esau is an aggressive hunter. He's the natural covenant. I don't know how you're going to do this, Lord, but I'm going to trust you with this. That's not what she does. She does not do that. Her response is not a response of faith. Her response is a response of duplicity. Okay, God, I'll take it from here. I heard what you were going to say. Now I'm going to take it. Is that okay, God? Jacob and I are going to work this together. We're going to get the blessing. We're going to get the birthright. And then once all that's achieved, then, Lord, you can take it from here, okay? We'll handle Esau. I'll, this is Rebecca. I'll handle Isaac. But, uh, Lord, you can just, you know, take a little break. Go get a cup of coffee. We've got it covered. Now I'm embellishing this in a ridiculous way. But that's exactly what they do. And so you have this immensely complex series of relationships within this family that is going to sow dissension. And when she is successful in getting Jacob the blessing for the firstborn from Isaac, Esau vows to murder her son, to murder Jacob. And that's why Jacob goes way up north, and Rebekah will never see her boy again. That's tragic. The son she loved, the one she showed preference for. Once he flees from her, she'll never see him again. She'll die before he comes back. So, and I don't mean to be, you know, unkind here, but she will pay a dear price for her duplicity. Instead of trusting the Lord, okay, Lord, you told me Jacob's going to be the covenant son. I'm going to, I'm going to trust you. You're going to work through all this because he has to get the birthright and he has to get the blessing. But that's not what she did. And so Jacob and Rebecca, it's sad for both of them. And Jacob will live for the rest of his life with the consequences of how he did this. I did it, Fred comes to our church, but I did a series of messages on Jacob uh, earlier here in, in January. And I titled the message, Jacob, Trickster, Trophy of God's Grace. He's a trickster, but he became a trophy of God's grace. That's the way God deals with all of us. I mean, that we all are trophies of God's grace. But how God transformed the character of Jacob, it's a tremendous story of God's grace. Let's get started now with the story. Yeah, please. Rebecca kind of came by it naturally because she was Laban's sister. It's kind of in the family. Laban will get to him a little later on because Laban will out-deceive Jacob. 
for a while. And then Jacob will get the upper hand. But it's, yeah, this was apparently one of the characteristics of the family. All right, now, once, in verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. Remember, he was a hunter. He was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew. The literal Hebrew is, let me gulp down the red stuff. That's literally the Hebrew there. So, reason, for I'm exhausted. Now, Moses, who wrote this, puts in parentheses, therefore, his name was called Edom. That's really interesting that Moses chooses to tell us that. You know, Moses writes this, and the first people to read this would have been the Jews, either during the, during the wilderness running years of 40 years or very early into the conquest. And they read this. Therefore, his name was called Edom. It's Esau. But Esau, red, also is the origin of Edom, red-like. And for the Jews who would read this centuries later, that's where the Edomites came from. The impulsive, aggressive, profane Edomites. Oh, that fits. They look at Esau. He's profane. He's not considering the spiritual things important. He's impulsive. The most important thing for him is, I want to gulp down that red stuff. You follow me? That parenthesis is extremely important for the Jewish people. Oh, that's where those impulsive, profane people that live to the south of us, that have historically given us so much trouble, that's where they came from. They're just like their dad, Esau. They're just like their founder, Esau. Oh, thank you, Moses. Now we understand that. The Bible often does that. It's a little parenthesis. You and I skip over it, but this is incredibly informative because the connection is between the character trait of Esau and the people he births. Jacob said, here you see the heel catcher. He has insight into his brother's character. He sees glaringly the character flaw of his brother. I'm going to leverage that. Brother, I know you're hungry. I care about you deeply. Of course, I'll give you some stew. <coughs> Nobody challenged me on that. That's not what the Bible says. Verse 31, Jacob said. There was a condition. What's that? There was yeah. a condition. <laughs> Small. Yeah, one. right. So Jacob says, sell me. Your birth rate, now, what does he mean? I'll give you a bowl of my soup if you give me the birth rate. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is the birth rate to me. There you see, impulsive, profane, 
lives for the moment. That's Esau. And when, when I use the word profane, I don't know if you're familiar with that word, but I mean, prof, treating religious spiritual things as insignificant. Flipping, flipping, your, flipping your arms at God, I don't care. That's what Esau is. Esau is not. He, this demonstrates Esau is not the son of the covenant. He could care less about it. The most important thing for him is, I've been out hunting all day. I'm hungry. I'm exhausted. Yeah, you didn't have the birthright. It doesn't matter to me. And that's really important because even though Jacob is duplicitous and, and deceiving, he shouldn't, have, he shouldn't have done it this way. But you see, too, don't make Esau into a victim. Esau is incredibly culpable for what he's done. So the Bible says to us here, so he swore to him and sold him his birthright. Jacob, I left that first phrase off. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold him his birthright. You're telling me honestly, and you're swearing the oath, the vow, that you are giving me the birthright. Now that means the firstborn birthright. That, you, know what that's, you know what that means. That, that's what's going on here. Now he has it. Thus Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil soup, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Then the Bible concludes this. Thus Jacob despised his birthright. Jacob treated, excuse me, Esau treated as worthless the birthright. That's the character of Esau. Profane, impulsive, Lives for the moment. Jacob, duplicitous, deceitful, the heel catcher. I'm going to get the birthright my way. He's not trusting God, trusting the Lord, the faith of his grandfather. You don't see the faith of his grandfather in Jacob yet. Okay? What do you say to the critics that say that God made <clears throat> One thing we we <clears throat> can't always know, Fred, is um, the character traits and temperaments of our children and our grandchildren. What we do have control over as parents is to shape and mold those temperaments and character traits into that which is pleasing to the Lord. That's my answer to your question. There are explanations of why children are the way genetic. I mean, this is the debate. Is it all genetic or behavior or whatever? I, I don't think it's terribly helpful for us to necessarily get involved in those debates. Medical people can deal with the genetic stuff, but still, our responsibility as parents is to take our children, whatever their temperaments and character traits are, and do what we can do. It's up to the Lord, because this is an original thought with me. God raises our children through us. We are the instruments, and it's a really big responsibility. And so, you know, I would use my daughter as an example. Joanna 
is an extremely strong-willed girl. When Dobson wrote his book, The Strong-Willed Child, he followed Joanna around and took notes. Then he wrote his book. Now, she is a classic strong-willed girl. I mean, it is unbelievable how strong-willed she is. And I, you know, Peggy used to say, if God does not help to shape her, she's going to end up in jail. Because she, she, she doesn't like to submit to authority. She really doesn't. The streak of, you, whenever you're with Joanna and you say some shit, her back arches up. And you know exactly. Yes, that's wrong will. Does anyone want to submit to Florida? Well, you know what's going on now. Well, yeah. Well, yes. All I'm saying, I'm trying to use this as a child. You're, you're not a child. You're, I don't know. Your dad and mom. And my wife. <laughs> <laughs> but I, what I'm saying is that was something for me and, and Peggy. We really prayed about that. And every day would help us to shape and mold this girl's strong will. And it, had she not come to the Lord and so on, that strong will stood, but that is one of her greatest, greatest strengths. I mean, it's one of the greatest strengths of Joanna. But she constantly has to. It was, it was really interesting. Can I tell you this story just quickly? It was about, uh, oh, two months into the pregnancy. You know, those first two months are kind of hard. There was a lot of nausea and sickness and all that stuff. And she would lay down, take a nap, it'd be three hours, which is totally unlike Joanna. And so this was about two and a half months into the pregnancy. I don't know what we were having dinner or something. I said, well, hi, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Are you you're still taking a I don't need to take naps anymore. I mean, that's Joanna. That's the strong will. You know, I don't need to take naps anymore. It was just, and Peggy hit me in the, the elbow. I was just, you know, there, there it is. That's just, that's just the way she is. That wasn't unkind. It was just her personality. So here's Esau. Now remember, he is, he's not four here. He's a late teenager, maybe around 20. It's hard to know exactly. Isaac favored him. Isaac didn't temper any of this. Isaac didn't shape any of this. He's a profane, impulsive hunter of the woods. And he will treat that which is precious to God as worthless. I'll sell it for a bowl of soup. That's what I think of what's important to God. So don't make Esau a victim. But don't miss the character fall of Jacob either. He is not a man of faith. He knows what God has decreed for him. But he's not going to trust the Lord. He's going to do it his way. Does that make sense? I mean, this is to get the two character traits here. Maybe I should put it this way. The two character flaws here is extremely important in understanding what's going to happen to these two men. Now, continuing into chapter, wow, is it 25 or 1 already? Okay. Um, let me see how much do I think I can get. All right. Um, let's just get into this next chapter then. Now, there was a famine in the land. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Now that's just, remember there had been famines earlier, but just the text is just making sure we understand. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. Now, if you are interested and you want to look at it, you can. But if you, you look on the map that's on page 19 in the notes, Gerar is very, you have to look, but it's over along the Mediterranean. 
It's right on the edge of the filter. So he is, what he is doing is he's moving from the area of Beersheba where he had been. He's going west, right near the Mediterranean Sea. We don't know why he does that. But to Abimelech, and the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. So during in this land, I will be with you, I will bless you. And to you and your offspring, I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham with your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven give the offspring in these lands. And your offspring of all the nations shall the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my law. What did God just review with Isaac? The Abrahamic covenant. God just reviewed with Isaac the Abrahamic covenant. Just like your father, I'm reviewing the Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, and blessing. So, because listen, the reason this is important because normally, in a time of intense famine, people that lived in Canaan would go down to Egypt to buy food, sometimes to sojourn there until the extreme famine was over. What did God just say to him? Don't do that. Stay in the land. What land? The land I promised to your grandfather. Don't go down to Egypt. And he reviewed the Abraham covenant. So what Abraham, excuse me, what Isaac is doing is in obedience to God. But when he's in Gerar, right along the Mediterranean, Isaac said unto Gerar, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, what did he say? She's my sister. Does that ring any bells to you? Does that sound familiar to you? <clears throat> That's exactly what his dad did. When he went, when Abraham went down to Egypt, remember Pharaoh and all that stuff? It's exactly the same thing. My mother used to say, the apple does not fall very far from the tree. I never knew what that meant. I had to look it up. But anyway, like father, like son, it's really, it's an amazing similarity here. For he feared to say, my wife. So what does that tell us? Two things. Number one, he is moving into the edge of the Philistine territory. He's not in friendly territory. These are all Canaanites, Philistines and all that. And he doesn't know these people. And it was not unusual. You go into a foreign land, if you have a very attractive, very nice wife for the guy to take them to the woman. Well, my sister. thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. And he had been there for a long time. Mimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebecca, his wife. That phrase laughing with is in the Hebrew is very difficult to translate. Because, I mean, laughing, you know, they told a joke, but the, the term seems to imply a level of intimacy. This is a laughing and enjoying being together with affection. So Abimelech is looking out and he sees Isaac and Rebecca, who's supposed to be his sister. 
And that's why if, if, if he believed it was his sister and whatever he sees, oh, well, that's fine, they're brother and sister. But you see, and so this laughing with, there's a, there's a hint there in this Hebrew word of affection, of intimacy. I don't even know what that means, but whatever he saw caused him to respond. Behold, this is in verse 9, behold, she is your wife. How could you say she's my sister? Isaac said, because I thought lest I die because of her. So whatever Abimelech saw between Isaac and Rebekah was much more than just laughing at a joke. And so he reaches the conclusion there's more to this. And so he admits it. All right, now what do we see here? We see fear replacing faith. And this is just, I'm not condemning him at all, but it's just like his dad when they were down in Egypt. Instead of trusting God, because of all the covenant promises, God had just made a whole bunch of covenant promises to him. Fear overcoming faith. And when fear overcomes faith, you sometimes make unwise decisions. And that's what Isaac has done. Jim, I have the New American Standard, and it says, Behold, Isaac was caressing his wife. That's trying to <clears throat> dynamically equivalent, give us a meaning of what that word might mean. Yeah. And it's literally laughing, but that's, it's, it's, that's a better way. For, this is more than going on. That's what he's seeing. He's not just seeing and laughing at a joke. There's something going on that he sees. This isn't brother and sister. This is husband and wife. So that's that's good. That's a good way to, to translate it. All right. Now I'm getting close to being out of time, but I want to try to finish this if we can. Uh, where am I? Um, verse eleven. Uh, verse ten. Bilmak said, "What? What is this you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with my with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us." So Bilmak. Warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, what I want you to see in this is also the sovereign protection of God. God is sovereignly protecting Isaac and Rebekah. Because in that, remember, Abimelech in this Gerard, where they are. This is not a godly community. This is not people who worship the one true only God. These are these are Canaanite slash Philistine people. And a foreigner comes into their area, meaning you know, someone that's not a part of their tribe or clan, and that's what Isaac and Rebecca were. It would have been very, very reasonable to assume somebody's going to take advantage of it. They think that's his sister. They're going to take it. They're going to abuse her. They're going to rape her. They're going to take her. So God uses Abimelech to put a protective hedge around Rebekah. Don't only think, oh, Abimelech's doing the right thing. This is God protecting the marriage because the entire covenant is banking on this being a marriage that produces covenant children. That will be Jacob and all his kids and so on. This is profoundly important. God superintending. Here 
replace his faith. God's still in control. The holy line that will eventually produce my son Jesus, I'm going now 2,000 years, is not going to be polluted. God is protecting them. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds of many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Remember the Abrahamic covenant? I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And wherever my people are, there will be blessing. And that's what we're seeing. But now, the response is the Philistines. Stopped and filled the earth of all his wealth. That the father's servants, his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we, envying the blessing. But this is not Abimelech specifically, but others in that area are caving in the wells. Therefore, all the herds and all the things that, that Isaac owned, they couldn't survive without water. So now this is a challenge. What will happen here? So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar. He's going farther to the east and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father. And he gave them the names of his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found it where well spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's servants. This water is ours. And he called it, and it goes on and on. Five specific scenes in this chapter of conflict over water. But each time, God blesses Isaac. From there, verse 23, he went to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him that same night. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you. will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abram's sake. So he built an altar there, called upon the name of the Lord, pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. This is very important now. The famine is beginning to end. God has blessed Isaac. He's moving from right on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea farther to the east of Beersheba, where Abraham, got to go back several chapters, Abraham had dug a well there and planted a tamarisk tree. Remember that? Isaac's back there. So he's resettling in the covenant land at the same place his father had settled years earlier. So he's back in the land in Beersheba where his father had established a treaty with Abimelech about the wells, about the land, and so now he's back. He's left that place, he's back at Beersheba. And that treaty about the wells is still in effect. Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Azusa, his advisor, and took gold, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? Verse 28, very significant. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. Let us make a covenant with you. 
us, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have nothing to you but good in a sensual way and peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. Now listen, what Abimelech and these people from Gerar are seeing is Isaac is blessed. There is no way they can overcome Isaac, so they want a new treaty, a new covenant arrangement. They see, I, I, I would never argue that they are true believers. That's not the point. They see the blessing. And so they agree to a form a whole new treaty agreement like his father had done with Abraham, Isaac's father, chapters earlier. So again, what are you seeing? There is this recognition by these Canaanite tribes. This is a very unique group of people being blessed by their God. We're going to make a new treaty with them. And this new covenant arrangement establishes Isaac in the land. Does that all make sense? I didn't read all that. There's various, they keep filling in the well, but Isaac keeps triumphing because God's blessing. Does Isaac deserve this? No, but that's grace. He's the covenant son of Abraham. And as you'll see next week, Jacob's the covenant son, despite all his conniving. And that's where we'll start to focus next week as we move into chapter 27. But I want to deal with verse 34 next week. There's a very important piece of information there. So are you with me? We covered a lot. I wanted, I hurried because I want to get all that done because this is very difficult to jump into this next week. But it's pretty simple what's going on. First question, Jim. Uh, how did he gain strength if he didn't have yeah, with other you mean people. Isaac? Yeah. <clears throat> well, he has, uh, I'm not sure I know what your question is. He has lots and lots of servants, yeah. hundreds of them, presumably, um, because of the number of, 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 of herds of, uh, and, and so on that he has. Is that your question? Yeah, yeah. they were native. No, 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 I don't yeah. think so. Mm. All right. Next week, we'll get into 27, which is really, really important chapter in the book of Genesis. All right, everybody. Thank you. I'm going to have to pray and get out of here. So if that's all right with you, we're going to end. Thank you. Father, thank you for a good time around the word of God. We learn much. Some good questions, good interactions to the men. Also, we see your hand of grace is upon Isaac. And as we started upon Jacob, uh, neither of these men are perfect. These are men that are learning what it means to walk with you in faith. These are men that have to have all those sharp edges sanded off. They have to be shaped and molded by you. You're doing that with Isaac, and next week we'll start to see how you do that with Jacob. Jacob will be extremely important in this patriarchal study because he will father the 12 tribes of Israel. And we learn so much about him, an extremely important evidence of your grace. How are you going to shape and mold Jacob? to be the kind of man you want him to be. This is what starts to happen in chapter 27. Lord, that's the case for all of us. We all are trophies of your grace. We're all in process. We're all in the process of being conformed to your son, which is the goal of sanctification. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for nudging us along on this journey with you. Thank you for helping us in these areas. And also, Lord, for disciplining us, shaping us, sometimes taking those, those things that need to happen in our lives so that we become the men of God you want us to be. 
So I trust each one of these men to you here in the room as well as on the line. We trust each one. May they become and, and, and lovingly walk with you in obedience as they become the men of God you want them to be. We trust this to you in Christ's name. Thank you, Jim. You're welcome. See you, man.